Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You have goals. Reach them fast with IU Online's accelerated degree programs. Our six and eight week courses are taught 100% online and can fit any schedule. Advance your career with a bachelor's in informatics. It only takes 10 minutes to apply. Earn an Indiana University degree that's valued around the world. Get started today at IU Online. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. The storm came out of nowhere. The students and their professor took shelter in their tent as the thunder grew louder. It was July, 1947. Anthropology professor William Holden and a group of his students from Texas Tech University had ventured into the New Mexico desert. Their plans to dig along the base of the Capitan Mountains were cut short by the sudden thunderstorm and the streak of otherworldly light that cut across the sky in a rapid descent. The next morning, Holden led his students to the crash site. They came across wreckage, smoke, torn metal, and something that looked eerily like blood. The army quickly arrived on the scene. Holden and his students were instructed to not return to the area. More importantly, they were told not to speak a word of what they had seen. But they had seen it. The wreck was in the unmistakable shape of a flying saucer, and the blood came from the small, mutilated bodies of the alien crew who had died in the crash. At least that's how one story goes. And the decades-long saga of the Roswell, New Mexico incident is full of stories just like that. Some are suspicious. Some seem outright impossible but some seem just plausible enough to keep people believing in aliens. Are we alone? Have we been alone? Will we be alone? Stories of alien visitation have been ingrained in human history. Alien life may not be confirmed, but our obsession with it can't be ignored. Welcome to Extraterrestrial on the ParCast Network. I'm Tim. And I'm Bill. Every Tuesday, we visit the marvelous and strange stories about our encounters with beings from another world. We're aware that some of these tales may seem completely unbelievable. Others may seem all too real. 
But these stories shed light on human nature, human beliefs, and human psychology. And each story has garnered hundreds, if not millions, of true believers. And for that reason, we think they're worth exploring. Today is our second episode on the Roswell Incident of 1947 and the legacy of belief in aliens that defines the town to this day. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Our last episode discussed the official story of what happened in Roswell over the summer of 1947. At some point in early July, Mac Brazel, the foreman of Foster Ranch, came across the remains of some kind of flying object. The Army first identified these remains as parts of a flying disc, but quickly recanted that story and stated that Brazel had found a weather balloon. Fifty years later, amidst a growing cultural obsession with the alleged cover-up of the Roswell incident, the Air Force released a report revealing the object was part of a top-secret military program meant to monitor for Soviet nuclear testing. That was the official story. And it's likely as much of an explanation as the government is ever going to provide. The U.S. government did not do a great job in clarifying what really happened back in 1947. The holes in the Air Force's official account allowed conspiracy theorists and ufologists to draw their own conclusions about what happened. Over the past 70 years, the story of the Roswell incident has been muddled by unverified witness statements, contradictory conclusions, and incomplete explanations for what really happened. Because of that, any story about Roswell, no matter how bizarre, can feel like it's true. This week, we're going to dive into some of the more out there and outlandish stories about what happened over the skies of Roswell in 1947. Is Roswell just a case of dozens of false memories encouraged by our cultural obsession with UFOs? Or did something really happen out there all the way back in 1947? One main reason that the Roswell mystery has endured for so long is that the history of alien activity around the town is largely comprised of secondhand statements and interviews that were conducted decades after the fact. We should note, most of the stories we're about to examine are largely unverified, or at least full of contradictions. Today, Roswell is synonymous with crash flying saucers, alien autopsies, and government cover-ups. But one often overlooked aspect of the Roswell mystery is how uninterested most of the world was when it first happened. In 1947, the potential flying disc that Mac Brazel discovered on the fields of Foster Ranch gained national attention for a period of a few hours. But after the Army backtracked its initial statement, the story went away. To most, it seemed like an open and shut case. And the case stayed shut for over 30 years. So why did it take so long after the initial incident 
for Roswell to gain national recognition as a site of potential alien activity. Historical trends play somewhat of a role here. There was a boom in UFO sightings following the original coining of the term unidentified flying object in 1947. Most of these sightings were disproven or publicly disregarded, and interest in UFOs waned. But in the 1970s, following the Kennedy assassination, the Vietnam War, and Watergate, national trust in the government was declining. Stories involving potential cover-ups of alien activity stood the chance of gaining national attention, even if they were in regards to events from decades ago. The Roswell mystery was a relatively obscure story until it was revisited by the press in 1978. It was, of all things, the tabloid newspaper National Enquirer that started the avalanche of investigations into the Roswell incident that would come to define the town over the next four decades. The Enquirer ran images from the original issue of the Roswell Daily Record that had been published on July 8, 1947. RAAF captures flying saucer on ranch in Roswell region. The Enquirer neglected to mention in their piece that the 1947 article they were reprinting had been revised by the Army just hours after its publication. The piece picked up some steam, which was naturally the entire point and the business model of that tabloid. Of course, the National Enquirer doesn't make for a very reliable source, especially for our purposes. But it is worth noting that they were the first to publish a piece on Roswell in the 70s and other writers, researchers, historians, and conspiracy theorists took note of the potential market for Roswell stories. In 1980, authors and prominent ufologists Bill Moore and Charles Berlitz published The Roswell Incident. The book is mostly a compilation of interviews from people who lived in or near Roswell in 1947. It included an interview from Jesse Marcel, the Army officer who saw the wreckage firsthand and helped to transport it back to Roswell Army Airfield. Marcel described the materials he saw, including those strange purple markings that were reportedly on several of the recovered pieces. Recall that some of the materials were reported as being covered in bizarre symbols. The proposed explanation for these strange markings was that the engineers who'd built the weather balloon had used some kind of children's tape that sported simple, colorful shapes. But UFO believers took the existence of the markings as proof that something more outlandish was going on. It was Marcel's account that helped cement the Roswell incident as a bona fide alien conspiracy. Moore and Berlitz put forth their theory in the book that an alien spaceship had collided with an Army weather balloon. It crash-landed in the desert near Roswell, and the Army recovered the aliens and all of their materials. Now, we don't have exact data on how well the Roswell incident sold back in 1980, when it was originally released. But we can measure the impact of the book by the sheer number of Roswell books that followed in its wake. The Moore and Berlitz account remained the dominant theory throughout the 1980s. Then, in 1991, Donald Schmidt and Kevin Randall set out to debunk Moore and Berlitz with their own book, The Truth About the UFO Crash at Roswell. Schmidt and Randall's book included a groundbreaking account of the Roswell incident from a man named Glenn Dennis. 
Glenn was in his early 20s in 1947, working at Ballard Funeral Home in Roswell and taking on occasional contract work for the nearby Roswell Army Airfield as an ambulance driver and mortician. Glenn received a phone call in early July. It was the mortuary officer from Roswell Army Airfield. He wanted to know if Glenn had any baby caskets, and if so, how many? If you work at a funeral home, you're bound to get some weird questions every now and then. The mortuary officer called again soon after. This time, he wanted to know about embalming fluid, specifically how and if it could be used to transport bodies that had been exposed to the elements for some time. Glenn didn't make much of the odd question, and after the call, he resumed his work. About an hour later, Glenn was dispatched on an ambulance call. An Army officer had gotten in an accident, and Glenn needed to transport him back to Roswell Army Airfield. Glenn picked up the injured airman and drove him to the base, where he noticed a high level of activity, more than what was common at the RAAF at that time of day. He parked his ambulance in a loading area near a line of other ambulances. As Army medical personnel unloaded the wounded soldier, Glenn took a peek in the ambulance adjacent to his. He saw that they weren't transporting injured people. They were carrying materials, wreckage of some kind, all sharp pieces, something like broken glass. Dennis knew right then that he should probably leave well enough alone but he couldn't stop himself. He walked around to the other ambulance and reached out to open the door and see what was inside. He was just about to open the truck when the soldier spotted him. Hey, what are you doing? He was grabbed by army personnel before he could get a look. The soldiers were escorting Glenn off the base when it happened. A nurse came bursting out of a nearby medical building, her hand covering her mouth. She was coughing, gagging, close to vomiting from some kind of unholy smell. Her face was stark white, and she looked as if she had seen a ghost. She spotted Glenn, recognized him, and urged him to leave the base as soon as he could. Glenn took her advice. He got off the base and didn't look back. The nurse friend, whose name Glenn kept a secret for the rest of his life, met up with Glenn the next day. She gave him more insight into what had really been going on. The airfield had been in a state of high alert when Glenn arrived on the base. The nurse had inadvertently walked into the infirmary building. She'd missed an order saying that the regular nursing staff was to stay away. She reported seeing men covered in plastic sanitary suits with surgical masks, each of them examining a pair of bodies in unzipped body bags. The bodies were small, mangled, and about child-sized. She didn't get a better look at them because the smell of the corpses was so rancid that she was forced to get out of the building. Glenn was curious as to what the nurse had seen in that tent. She drew him a sketch on a napkin. The beings she had seen were short, with long, slender bodies and large, bulbous heads. They looked like aliens. According to Glenn, his nurse friend was transferred off of Roswell Army Airfield after that encounter. He never saw her again. Now, this could have either been a particularly chilling turn of events or a convenient way to explain why someone who maybe didn't exist in the first place has never been found. 
The Glenn Dennis story may well be the key to all the unanswered questions from the events of July 1947. Mac Brazel did find the wreckage of a weather balloon, but he also found pieces of the alien ship that crashed into that weather balloon. The Army had already recovered the rest of the wreckage and the alien bodies, and when Mac Brazel came to the airfield to give a statement, he may have spotted the alien corpses, which would explain why the Army held him against his will for a period of several hours while they locked down the official story. Glenn Dennis's story may be the witness account that proves aliens were involved in the Roswell incident. That is, if his story was true. Next, we'll discuss the range of unverified and unlikely accounts of what happened at Roswell, as well as the phenomenon among ufologists that drives them to believe. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, back to the story. One of the more frustrating things about researching the Roswell case is the sheer number of stories and accounts that, while fascinating, turn out to be contradictory, unverified, or flat-out untrue. Books like The Roswell Incident, Crash at Corona, and The Truth About the UFO Crash at Roswell stirred up interest in the Roswell mystery, but they also led people to make bizarre connections that had no basis in fact. William Holden is one key example of this. There are two noteworthy things about Holden and his alleged encounter with the alien crash site. The first is that Holden and his students may be the first people to have encountered the alien wreckage. The timeline of what happened over that period of days in 1947 is not 100% clear. But it's possible that Holden saw the crash site even before Mac Brazel found the wreckage on Foster Ranch. The second key thing about Holden is that he maintained he never saw anything all the way until his death in 1993. That's worth noting, just because most Roswell witnesses are eager to discuss their experience. So how do we even know about Holden's potential connection to Roswell? The link between the professor and the alleged crash is, like most things associated with Roswell, a little murky. The Roswell incident discusses the account of a man named Grady Barney Barnett. 
Barnett died in 1969, but on his deathbed, he allegedly revealed what he had seen back in 1947. Barnett was a soil engineer. His exact reason for being out in the New Mexico desert is unclear, but it's not a stretch to guess that he was probably gathering samples. Barnett claimed to have come across the crash site where he saw a metallic disc and the bodies of several small alien men. He said that he encountered a group of students at the crash site and that they were all sent away once the army arrived. Barnett didn't recognize the students, but Charles Berlitz and William Moore, who wrote The Roswell Incident, took Barney's story and cross-referenced it with student groups that could have been in the area at that time. Berlitz and Moore, along with other researchers, determined that Holden's group was most likely the ones that Barnett had mentioned, despite the fact that Holden never once claimed to have seen anything related to the Roswell incident. Barnett's story was naturally impossible to corroborate. He was dead by the time his account started spreading among UFO theorists, so no one could follow up to see if there were any holes in his story. And yet, because of that one secondhand account, Professor William Holden became inextricably linked to the Roswell saga. There's no official record of Holden or his students being anywhere near Roswell during the period when the crash likely occurred. Later research into Holden's own notes put them closer to Fort Sumner, about 80 miles from the town. Holden's involvement in the affair seems really unlikely given that all we have to verify it is the second-hand account of a man who died before he could be interviewed. But there are dozens of conspiracy websites that go to great lengths to link Holden to Roswell, even going so far as to suggest Holden was paid off by the U.S. military to lie about what he saw. Holden serves as an example of how these Roswell stories are considered. The authors of Roswell books tend to operate from the illogical premise that anyone who claims to have seen something that indicates an alien presence or an army cover-up is telling the truth. And any person who denies the presence of extraterrestrials in Roswell is lying or being pressured by the powers that be. Holden spent the remainder of his life denying that he'd had anything to do with Roswell. He's a tragic example of how the Roswell mystery created a stigma that one could never really rid themselves of. Even after countless examinations of the facts indicated that Holden wasn't involved, people still consider him as a potential witness. Holden wouldn't speak about Roswell, but plenty of other people had no problem coming forward with their versions of what happened in Roswell. Glenn Dennis was one of them, and despite the groundbreaking nature of his story, a lot of it turned out to be suspicious. Glenn has been thoroughly examined and largely disregarded by a big part of the Roswell alien-focused community. He never even entered the conversation about Roswell until the late 1980s when he saw an episode of Unsolved Mysteries about the 1947 incident and started calling reporters and claiming he knew there was more to the story. The nurse in his account has never been interviewed or even identified. Dennis eventually named her as Naomi Self, but no person by that name seems to have ever existed. When pressed, Dennis claimed that Naomi Self wasn't her real name. 
he'd given an alias in order to protect her. Dennis's account of his nurse friend and her supposed sighting of the little gray aliens seems to be little more than a hoax. This points to a prevalent issue in the Roswell mythos. Stories like Glenn Dennis's were circulated for long enough that, even after they were proven to be likely untrue, people still believe in the parts that line up with a previously held belief that aliens were somehow involved. The sheer abundance of stories that spread across the UFO conspiracy community in the mid-1990s eventually forced the U.S. military to address the Roswell incident. Public interest in Roswell, aliens, and the alleged cover-up was reaching an all-time high by the mid-1990s. The U.S. government started to field pressure from the public to clarify what had really happened. So the Air Force released a report in 1994 that explained how the wreckage from Foster Ranch was actually part of a top-secret surveillance project. The Air Force hoped that by revealing Project Mogul and its intent, they would curb any further talk of a cover-up. But their report had the opposite effect. The 1994 report confirmed that the Army had been hiding something, and theorists took the report's admission as proof that the Air Force only revealed the details of Project Mogul to hide even more sinister secrets. One of the biggest criticisms of the 1994 report was that it failed to address any of the subsequent reports of strange occurrences around Roswell following the 1947 incident. The Roswell incident and the sensationalist books that followed it made people aware of all sorts of bizarre claims, including the reports of bodies falling from the sky and Glenn Dennis's account of the alien autopsy he almost witnessed. Dennis relayed one story in particular about an alien with a swollen, bulbous head who apparently walked onto Roswell Army Airfield in 1959 and was never heard from again. The Air Force felt the pressure to elaborate on their initial report, and in 1997, they released a follow-up. Surely, they thought, this would clear things up. The 1997 report directly addressed the rumors of bodies that were allegedly spotted falling from the sky in the 1950s. As it turns out, they weren't bodies at all. They were crash test dummies. In the 1950s, the U.S. Army had been testing the effectiveness of parachutes in high-altitude jumps. These tests primarily included strapping a crash test dummy into a chute and then examining them for damage upon landing. Translation, they dropped the dummies from really high up and then checked to see how they broke. The 1997 report even offered an explanation for the bulbous-eyed man who had been reported to walk onto Roswell Army Airfield of his own accord. His name was Dan Fulgham, and he was a pilot. By 1959, the Army had begun using live humans in their altitude parachute test. Fulgham had taken part in a test jump. While he was descending, his helmet malfunctioned and the glass of his viewplate shattered. Fulgham was still very high up when this happened, where the atmosphere was thinner. The lack of oxygen in the air, combined with the intense velocity of the fall, caused his head and eyes to swell and left him looking like, well, an alien. 
Fulgham, who was alive and well in 1997, even made a public statement corroborating the military's report and urging that over the course of his military career, he had never encountered anything that would imply that aliens actually existed. The Army asserted that the rest of the sightings of aliens were in fact just people spotting the dummies and misremembering them as something more extraterrestrial. To the Air Force, that was all she wrote. Case closed was the official word. But it wasn't that simple. A huge part of the Roswell mythos had to do with the belief that the Army had a hand in the cover-up. UFO theorists believe so fervently that extraterrestrials were involved that there was nothing the military brass could say to convince them otherwise. If the government claimed nothing had happened, then they were clearly hiding something. If they explained in detail what had really happened, as they did in the 1994 and 1997 reports, then they were clearly just admitting that there was more to the story. One great irony of the Roswell saga was how the ufologist community became so focused on exposing a government hoax that they inadvertently put themselves in a position to be fooled. We'll look at one prime example of how the alien fervor around Roswell can turn toxic right after this. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now, back to the story. One trend that conspiracy theorists and ufologists have noticed in regards to Roswell is that overall, new accounts of what happened are on the decline. It's been over 70 years, and naturally, there aren't many people left who were alive and around Roswell back in 1947. But that's not to say that there haven't been any new developments in the case. The following account is from a 2017 Guardian article by Les Carpenter. In 2012, a cameraman named Adam Dew was contacted by an acquaintance, Joseph Beeson. Beeson had something that Dew needed to see. It was a series of slides, large photographs that Beeson had obtained from his sister, who in turn had gotten them from the estate of Hilda Blair Ray, an elderly woman who died in 1998. The box of slides had been forgotten for over a decade until Beeson found them and looked through them. The slides presented a storied life with color images of European cities, celebrities, and even former president Dwight D. Eisenhower. But then Beeson showed Dew the last two slides. They both featured a picture of a small body with dried, wrinkled brown skin and shriveled limbs. The skull was large and elongated, oddly sized given its proportions to the rest of the corpse. The pictures were both of good quality, but the age of the film had created some blurry spots. One spot in particular seemed to indicate a piece of paper or some kind of label. But Dew was more interested in what he could see. Dew suspected that this strange corpse wasn't human. Dew was a professional videographer. Beeson was a businessman. 
they weren't experienced writers or researchers. And if the images they had were real, they would need the help of professionals. But we should note that there isn't much required to become a professional ufologist. Dew reached out to Tom Carey, a ufologist who had spent most of the 21st century continuing the legacy of Roswell-focused book publications. His 2007 book, Witness to Roswell, was, at the time, one of the most updated examinations of the mystery. Dew and Beeson invited Carey to come look at the slides. Carey claimed that when he saw the pictures, he immediately knew he was looking at one of the most substantial developments that the Roswell case had seen in years. To be clear, there was no immediate apparent connection between the mysterious slides and the Roswell mystery. But Carey was a Roswell fanatic who had made the town a big part of his life's work. He seemed to want to make the connection between Roswell and the photos. Carey's involvement may have been an intentional move by Dew to corroborate a connection between the slides and Roswell. After all, Carey was a known, published figure in the world of Roswell conspiracy theories. It's not really surprising that Carey jumped to make the connection so quickly. Carey, Dew, and Beeson then launched into their own investigation into what exactly was in that picture. They pieced together Hilda Blair Ray's life. She had been an attorney and an amateur pilot who, based on the slides, spent a lot of her later life traveling the world with her husband. Though Hilda had lived in Sedona, Arizona when she passed away, she had spent most of her life living in Midland, Texas. Dew noted that Midland was relatively close to Roswell, only 250 miles, or about four hours away. More importantly, Hilda was friends with Mamie Eisenhower, President Eisenhower's wife. The working theory came to be that Hilda, by virtue of being close to the first family at the time of the Roswell incident, had been granted access to something that was truly top secret. She may have even spotted something in the desert while she was flying her plane overhead. With this idea in mind, Carrie looped in Donald Schmidt, a fellow UFO researcher with whom Carrie had written Witness to Roswell. The four men debated what to do next. Dew, who possessed the slides during most of this time period, became increasingly paranoid that someone, maybe the government, maybe aliens, maybe something worse was going to come for him and the slides. Dew didn't want to reveal the slides until he'd confirmed that they were, in fact, pictures of aliens. But he also knew that he had a limited window of opportunity to show the slides before public interest waned. He decided to produce a documentary about the slides and his investigation into them. As he sought funding through 2013 and 2014, word started to get out that he had photographic proof of aliens. Carey and Schmidt had signed NDAs before Dew showed them the slides. They weren't allowed to publicly reveal what was on them. But Carey couldn't keep the secret to himself. At a UFO conference in 2014, he let it slip that he had seen something in a picture that may prove the existence of aliens on Earth. As word spread about the slides, questions of their validity began to circulate. Why would anyone not want to show these photos to the world? Dew was caught in a bind. 
If he curbed to pressure and showed the slides before he'd been able to verify them, then he ran the risk of having someone prove that the slides weren't real. But if he waited too long, people would begin to suspect that he and Carrie were involved in some kind of hoax. Finally, in 2015, Dew and Beeson decided to reveal the pictures. They wanted to make some kind of TV special where Dew could air his incomplete footage for the documentary and then culminate in the reveal of the slides. They sent proposals to producers and networks. No one in America was interested. Only Jaime Maussan, a Mexican TV personality, expressed interest. With no other options, Dew and Beeson agreed to host a reveal event in Mexico City, which would be live-streamed to the entire world. Thousands of people paid to tune into the event. The stream lasted four hours, and when Dew finally showed the slides, most people watching from home reported that they could barely see the subject of the picture due to the low resolution of the stream. But it didn't take long for the internet to make high-resolution images from the live stream and post them. These updated pictures of the slides were actually better quality than the original pictures. The better image quality revealed the spots of the image that were previously too blurry to make out. That white piece of paper turned out to be a white plaque with lettering on it. The plaque read, Mummified Remains of a Two-Year-Old Boy. The alien body wasn't alien after all. It was a mummy. The picture had been taken in a museum. Dew, Beeson, Carrie, and Schmidt had spent years trying to verify a mummified corpse. Carrie's reputation was severely damaged. He has actually spent much of the past few years distancing himself from Dew and framing himself as a victim of the hoax. Dew, in turn, spoke against Carrie claiming that he never outright stated that he thought he had a picture of an alien, but that Kerry had seen, quote, what he wanted to see. How could these men, all of whom were published authors, spend three years trying to validate the subject of the image, only to find out within days of releasing it to the public what it really was? How could they never think to use technology to increase the resolution of the images? The process was clearly easy, given how quickly internet commenters were able to do it. It simply speaks to the strong-held beliefs that still surround all things Roswell to this day. People want to find real evidence so badly that they can inadvertently fall for something as easily resolved as Dew's mysterious slides. It's just a matter of believing something based on facts, or a lack thereof there's a genuine desire to believe that something otherworldly really did happen back on that night in 1947. Even the local leaders of Roswell want to believe. The alien connection has turned out to be pretty good for business. Roswell struggled economically throughout the latter half of the 20th century. In the late 1980s and very early 1990s, more than one visitor to Roswell described it as being akin to some kind of ghost town. But then, with the influx of competing books on the Roswell incident published in the early 1990s, combined with the national attention brought by the military reports, city leaders noticed an uptick in tourism. 
1996, one official noted that Roswell had made over $5 million in revenue related to UFO tourism. So that same year, the town established the World UFO Festival, centered around Roswell. The first festival took place in July of 1997. Tens of thousands of people came from all over the world. Stanton Friedman and other authors of Roswell materials held competing lectures and debates over what was real and what was fiction. Scientific expos saw experts examine various metals that had been found out in the desert near the crash site and hypothesized if any of them could be otherworldly. Jesse Marcel Jr., son of Jesse Marcel, even made an appearance to talk about his father's experience with the crash site and the military action back in 1947. For a UFO theorist, the festival was heaven on earth, and it was popular. The festival takes place every year to this day with the 24th gathering slated for July 2019. So if nothing else came of this entire saga, at least there's a festival that entertains tens of thousands of people every single year. Consider all that has happened in the 70 plus years since 1947. Mac Brazel's silence. Jesse Marcel's account of the bizarre materials he found on Foster Ranch. The army backtracking its statements, military operations and tests in the skies around Roswell. The list of people who may have seen or who may know something about Roswell is endless, which naturally creates a situation in which we can always be looking for the next break in the case. The entire story of Roswell will likely never be revealed. Too much time has passed. Too many people who might have had answers are dead or have misremembered things. As such, Roswell will always be an unfinished book an inconsistent narrative that provides enough holes and unspoken possibilities that the association with aliens will never go away. As for our own take, it's daunting to sum up the believability of the entire collection of Roswell theories. There are so many stories, so many different angles and accounts. There are too many inconsistencies in the various accounts for everyone to be telling the truth but it certainly seems like something had to be going on that we still don't know about. After all, why would so many people allow their lives to be defined by the Roswell conspiracy if there wasn't some kind of greater cause behind it? We give the Roswell mystery a four out of 10 on the believability scale. We may never know the true, real story of what happened in Roswell, but we do know this. In 2047, a hundred years after the incident, there will still be believers. Thanks for listening to Extraterrestrial. You can listen to Extraterrestrial and all of ParCast's other shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Extraterrestrial was created by Max Cutler. It's a production of Cutler Media and part of the ParCast Network. 
It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Extraterrestrial is written by Colin McLaughlin and stars Bill Thomas and Tim Johnson. <laughs>